Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Dangerous Thoughts on Unsafe Space. I'm Carter Laren, and today is some kind of day in November, November 10th. November 10th. Um, sorry, I'm starting a few minutes late. I had some audio difficulties. Uh, much like some of the vaccines, keep in mind that your subscription uh, does need to be boosted. It does wane over time. You need to go boost your subscription. So if you haven't subscribed recently, go subscribe again. Hell, start another email address and subscribe from that one. Um, you can also watch us at not only here on YouTube, but on Utreon and Odyssey. And we're always streaming at unsafespace.com, so you can watch us there as well. Uh, special thanks to those of you who are paid supporters. Uh, couldn't do this without you guys. Really, really appreciate it. If you're not a paid subscriber, consider consider doing that you get if you're a I don't know I think it's apostate level or above you get this cool little mug it's a mostly mostly peaceful grenade mug um or you can buy merch I think I made a baby onesie about agorism uh which is on the merch page now also on our website so anyway uh someone says you cannot see total number of dislikes we didn't change anything but I did hear that YouTube was gonna allow people to hide their dislikes we didn't do that intentionally, but uh, I will go and see if I can enable it. I want people to see the likes and dislikes. I, I think it's cowardly to pretend that you've, you've got more love than you do. So um, sometimes we get dislikes. That's fine. Anyway, what else? Any? I don't think there's anything else uh, procedurally or housekeeping-wise I have to let you guys know of. Um, I was going to talk about – originally I was going to talk about faith – today because Thomas St. Thomas, who is an excellent writer uh, on Unsafe Space, you can read him on Medium or our Substack, which we haven't really been promoting our Substack yet, but we will start to soon. He's an excellent writer, very smart guy. He and I had a minor disagreement about faith. Uh, I, we didn't really finish the discussion, and I really wanted to talk more about it on Dangerous Thoughts because I thought it would be a great topic for an episode. But uh, I ran into some other stuff that I just kind of can't help myself. I need to talk about. So um, we're going to do that. And hopefully next week, I will talk about faith for Thomas and whoever else wants to talk about it. Uh, also, let me know how you think the discussion format was with someone else. Last week was the first time I had uh, a, a person on and didn't do the kind of normal show. This is going to be more of a normal show, though. So here we go. I have to admit that um, Keith says I have faith he will discuss this next week. No, you're confident that I'll discuss it next week, and that will therein lies the therein lies the argument. Um, I I can't help but watch this Rittenhouse stuff. I'm glued to the stupid. I mean, I haven't watched the whole thing, but for someone who doesn't pay attention to the news at all, I've watched at least a couple hours sporadically. It's I can't. I can't stand it. I'm, I'm like addicted. It's like heroin. Uh, and so there's something I have to say about this before I get into the topic of the day, which is not related, really. Um, so obviously, there's lots of problems with the coverage of this whole thing, as you would expect from, from the media. You know, prior to the trial, there was social media, all the social media companies kind of banning any defense of him or discussion of him because he was labeled as a mass murderer, even though he hadn't been convicted. Um, GoFundMe banned him uh, and that kind of stuff. This is all 
pre-trial stuff. <laughs> Rebecca P, I'm going to shout out because she gave a super chat, so I won't hold off on responding to this. Rebecca P, uh, I don't know if she's channeling Darth Vader. I think she is. She says, I find your lack of faith disturbing. Lack of discussion of faith this week disturbing. I understand. I think, do wait. I actually have a Darth Vader behind me. Darth Vader finds the lack of faith disturbing. We'll stick him here for a minute. Uh, he doesn't focus very well. Focus doesn't work. Oh, well. Anyway, uh, yeah, during the trial, it was a, uh, a cluster. Uh, they, social media companies, like I said, uh, wouldn't allow conversation. Everyone labeled him a mass murderer already. GoFundMe wouldn't let him uh, raise any money. But during the trial, uh, there's been like lots of misrepresentations uh, from the media. And I don't want to go over all of them, but the the Gage Grosskurtz or whatever his name is, his testimony. I mean, the main takeaway from his testimony was that he was a prosecutorial witness who was supposed to solidify the case that it wasn't self-defense and that it was an attempted murder. And he basically openly said, yeah, he didn't shoot me till I pointed the gun at him, my gun at him and advanced towards him. I mean, it was just a clusterfuck. And of course, you know, all the mainstream media, their takeaway from that day was like, he was he was scared for his life. That that's that was the takeaway of his testimony. I mean, they're just they're setting everyone up for a riot because if if this you know the mainstream media is painting this picture as if the trial is kind of going well for the prosecution and the exact opposite is true. So people will be surprised if if Rittenhouse is acquitted on a lot of the major counts uh, because they're listening to the mainstream media. Um, but the other thing that really bothered me about it is the prosecutor is just a tool. I mean, the prosecutor, Tool is too polite of a word. He's, he is the biggest douchebag on the planet. Uh, he, he is saying things like, why were you running to a fire? And Kyle's like, to put it out? And he's like, so there's lots of fires. Who cares, right? And like he's, <laughs> Kyle's like, the guy had a chain. He's like, but did he have a club, a knife, a knife, a gun? It's like, no, no, no. It just, this kind of crap. He made a, some comment at one point where he said, you know, Kyle get kicked in the face and he's like well but all the guy uses is his foot right <laughs> it's 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 absolutely ridiculous and they're playing this this really really dishonest game that i want to point out that a lot of people do with cases like this um any case involving uh use of force where you know lots of stuff is happening simultaneously you got adrenal adrenaline pumping you get reaction times at play and all this kind of thing um they're treating every single still frame and moment in in this uh, in, the, in that evening as as if one can stop time constantly while you're walking around in in a threat situation and analyze all the factors and then move to the next frame and analyze all the fact like, as if that's how real life works. So they'll do things like like Kyle had just finished defending himself by shooting, shooting at a guy and missing. And he's raising, he's, he's lowering his, his rifle and another guy's coming. And so they like towards him. And so they, they freeze the frame there. And they're like, look, you're pointing at his feet and he's not a threat to you. And it's like, yeah, do you realize all the stuff that's going on? Right. And they didn't even, um, they, they don't take into account. Like there was a, a time he, the first shooting was four rapid shots, bam, 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 bam. They're like, well, he he wasn't a threat to you after the first shot or two or whatever. So why didn't you stop? It's it's like, do you understand? You don't you don't notice that he's not a threat until he stops moving. It takes like 
you know, quarter second, half a second for your brain to process what's happening and then stop firing. Like you're firing until the threat stops. It's absolute dishonest bullshit. It's absolute dishonesty. It is, and I, I thought it would be really hard to disgrace the legal profession because the legal profession is already a disgrace. But this guy finds out, he figures out how to disgrace the legal profession. He makes, he, he makes look lawyer, he makes lawyers look worse than they already do. Um, he, he yells, he, he basically he gets badger. He badgers Kyle. He's like, you didn't even try to save people. <laughs> Kyle's like, I'm being chased by a mob. He's like, but you shot them and you claim to be a medic. You didn't try and save them. It's like, it, it's absolute. It's an absolute cluster. Uh, but the main thing I want to talk about with, re with respect to this trial actually isn't some of that. I just had to get that off my chest because I've been watching it. Sorry. Uh, I want to talk about this gross naivete that people have been displaying with respect to carrying a firearm. And it seems like this is nearly ubiquitous. I don't hear people talk about this much. Um, Kyle, I mentioned it on Monday a little bit. Kyle mentioned it a little bit in his testimony, uh, in response to some of the, um, prosecutorial questions. Um, but there's lots of people this happens with every shooting. It's so annoying. There's lots of people sitting around pontificating about what Kyle should and shouldn't have done when faced with these situations. Um, you know, someone attacking him or whatever. Um, and there's this implication that you can't shoot an unarmed person, that if you shoot an unarmed person, you're automatically the, the murdering aggressor. Um, and there's people that are saying things like, well, you should have used other means to fight Rosenbaum. Yeah, he was, he was going to He's chasing you, and he actually reached for your weapon, and, and Kyle claims grabbed his weapon. You should have used other means to fight him. And this kind of crap reminds me of the stupid shoot him in the leg stuff that uh, people, the argument that people make sometimes that, you know, people whose only experience with, with firearms is, or force on force in general, comes from Hollywood. They sit on their couches and, you know, uh, <laughs> snack on Doritos and pontificate about shooting in the leg uh, when they've never been in any kind of situation remotely related to that, um, and they don't never fired a gun, uh, and I don't. So I don't like this naivete about how people are treating carrying a weapon and what you respond and, and like what you can possibly do to respond to aggression when you're carrying uh, a weapon. Um, by the way, well, I'll pause here to shout out to I'll Fight You Naked, who says the only reason why this was not dismissed is it's political. Yeah, I, I know the prosecutor. The prosecutor is a douchebag and also, I think, incompetent. I guess, my guess is he was probably pressured into taking this case. Um, so anyway, what I want to say about about having a firearm, bearing, bearing arms, I'm going to start with some obvious stuff. A firearm is a deadly weapon. There's nothing wrong with carrying a deadly weapon. Carrying a deadly weapon doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't make you suspicious. It doesn't make you evil. It doesn't make you the guy that must have done been in the wrong. It's just carrying a deadly weapon. Um, the prosecutor also seems to not understand anything about insurance. So he, he's like, I'm I, he must not use condoms or anything because he's like, why would you carry a gun? You said you didn't expect anything. Uh, you didn't expect to need to protect yourself. Why are you carrying it for protection? It's, it's like, He's pretending that he's never heard of the entire insurance industry, right? So look, there's nothing wrong with carrying a deadly weapon. There's nothing wrong with going from one place to another or crossing borders with it, at least morally. I don't know, you know, legally, I'm not going to get into that. 
there's nothing wrong in Kyle's case with going from the community where you live to the community where your dad lives to protect it. Okay. Um, there's nothing wrong with taking it into a situation in which there's potential for violence. In fact, that might be a good idea. If you think there's potential for violence, you see people being violent and you know, you're going to put yourself in harm's way for whatever reason you've decided to go to that situation. Um, it's probably a good idea maybe to be armed and there's nothing wrong with open carrying. You can argue, you know, whether or not, you know, carrying or open carrying is prudent in a particular circumstance, but morally there's nothing wrong with doing it. You're perfectly in your right morally. Um, and in a lot of instances you're within your rights legally to, to carry a firearm openly. Um, and carrying a firearm does not obligate you to use less lethal options in altercations. Um, now I want to just remind everyone, this is a moral, not a legal analysis. So don't yell at me about the law. Um, but I would argue that carrying a firearm is, is an obligation of sorts. Um, you're responsible for its use. It's a deadly weapon, right? You're responsible for its use. Um, you can't leave it at the table in the diner while you go pee. Uh, you can't let an untrained person hold on to it for you. Right. In fact, at one point, the prosecutor was like, why'd you take your gun with you? And Kyle's like, because I had it on me. Like, I don't think Kyle didn't have the, the wits about him to say, would you want me to leave it on the sidewalk? Like, what were the options? Fucking moron. Uh, but, you know, the prosecutor was making it sound like, oh, you intentionally took the gun from this location to that location. It's like, yeah, it's strapped to me. What the hell do you want? I, you want me to throw it in the dumpster? What do you want me to do with it? Um, anyway, practically... If you're going to carry a firearm, practically this obligation boils down to the fact that you must maintain possession of it. Obviously, if you have like a trusted friend that you know is trained, you can give it to them temporarily, but then you're kind of transferring that responsibility to them. And this is a principle that I think applies generally when you're armed. When you're armed, you must maintain possession of it because you're responsible for it. And if for no other reason, then you're responsible for your own life. Right. Uh, you can even ignore ob any obligation you feel to protect other people. That's fine. You're responsible for making sure that it's not used against you. And if you care about people around you too, obviously you're responsible for it not being used against them. So practically this means you can never get into a fist fight when you're armed. You can't get into a fist fight. That's not an option for you. So let's break this down. You're standing there with your gun peacefully. You're not doing anything, or you're putting out fires, or you're you know, walking around, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter where you are, doesn't matter why you're there. Um, obviously, unless your presence itself is kind of an act of aggression, right? If you barge in my front door, and I don't know you, and you're carrying an AR-15, you might get shot. But, uh, you know, you're doing other things that are aggressive, but you're standing there peacefully, minding your own business with your gun. You're not initiating the use of force. Um, I want to make a distinction here also. Sorry, I'm going down rabbit holes, but it's the initiation of the use of force that's a problem, not just the initiation of force. The use of force, um, force can be used without employing the force directly. So pointing the gun at someone and telling them to give you their wallet, that's the use of force, even though you didn't actually do anything, right? It's a valid, reasonably understood threat that to bring force into the equation of your interaction, right? Holding a chain in your hand and screaming menace menacingly that you're gonna kill someone and rip his heart out 
as Rosenbaum did, telling him that if you get if he gets Kyle alone, he will kill him, as Rosenbaum allegedly did. Uh, that's the initiation of the use of force. So there you are, you're standing there, and someone attacks you. Maybe they chase you, they try to punch you, they try to take your weapon, they try and grab your weapon. That person has now, by the way, I'm sorry if you hear the baby in the background. Um, that person has now indicated, right? You're assuming kind of people are being peaceful, but that person, the person who tries to attack you or steal your weapon from you, they've indicated that they're willing to initiate the use of force against you, right? And they know you're armed. So they've indicated that they're willing to initiate the use of force against you and they know you're armed. So you can't assume really anything about their sanity, how far they'll go to, to use force if they're given the means. Um, like Julius Caesar, they have crossed the Rubicon at that point. They've initiated the use of force against you and you're armed and they know you're armed, right? They can no longer be regarded as someone who behaves rationally. They can no longer be regarded as someone who's peaceful. They have established themselves as aggressors. That's the situation. So you have to act on principle in response. And that principle was maintain possession of your firearm. That's your responsibility. You've got to maintain possession. And if you don't maintain possession, you risk, you risk the death of, you risk your own death, right? You risk the death of other innocent people around. You don't know what this person's going to do because they've made themselves out to be an aggressor. They're the anomaly in society. They are not minding their own business. They are initiating the use of force and they're being aggressive. So you can't say, well, I assume if he beats me up and takes my firearm, he's gonna turn it into the police and go knitting. No, you can't make that assumption about him anymore. So this person, they attacked you knowing you're armed, or maybe they just tried to take your weapon, by the way, which is a form of attack. Trying to steal someone's lethal weapon is a form of attack. Um, either way, you've got to maintain possession. So, um, like I said, because they've revealed themselves to be a danger. So, you want to if you want to minimize the risk of injury or death, as is a good thing to do, there's a few options you have. You can try and de-escalate the situation through words. Now, that kind of only works if they're only using words at you, if they've already kind of made moves physically, probably that course of action isn't even worth pursuing. Um, the best thing to do is the sneaker defense, right? You turn around, run, get the hell out of Dodge, right? Get away, uh, get away from the aggressor. Now, if you can't do that, um, and the person's either assaulting you or attempting to steal your weapon or whatever, and you can't get away, you're cornered somehow, you must use any available means necessary to stop them. And if the only readily available means is firing on them, you fire on them. It's not just that you could do that. You should do that morally, legally, I don't know. Now you might say, how do you know the attacker will use the weapon against you if the, they obtain it? You don't, but you've managed to carry the weapon this whole time without initiating the use of force against other people. So you know it's safe in your arms. This other guy has shown that he's willing to initiate the use of force against people, even armed people. So he's a little bit crazy and stupid. You have to assume 
you have to assume that he does not intend to suddenly turn peaceful once he has possession of your firearm. You can't get into a fist fight while you're armed. If you are knocked unconscious, you lose your weapon to a dangerous individual who may shoot you or other people. If there's a struggle over the weapon, it might discharge and hurt you or someone else, or you could lose the weapon. These are not acceptable outcomes. They are not acceptable. You must maintain possession of the weapon. So let's apply this to the Rosenbaum shooting, which was the first one. He was chasing Kyle. Kyle was running away from him. Even the, even the prosecution started using the word chase. At first they were saying you were running in the same direction. Uh, <laughs> but even they started using the word chase. Rosenbaum was chasing him. Uh, yeah, he threw a plastic bag and that's all it was. Uh, but Kyle didn't shoot him because he threw a plastic bag. That's not what he did. Kyle shot him because of what he did afterwards. And the evidence here is both on video and forensic evidence. It suggests Kyle ran away, but he ended up in a tight space. There were people and cars kind of in a, in a tight space. So he had to kind of slow down. He got stuck. He couldn't, you know, there's a difference between running through a maze and running top speed on a track. Like he's, he was running in the clear and he, and obstacles came. So he slowed down. Uh, and he realized he was getting cornered and slowing down. And he, and he realized, I think instinctively, slowing down, Rosenbaum was going to catch, catch him. And he was. So he turned around. And Rosenbaum caught up with him. And, and this all happened really quickly. Like, as he's turning around, Rosenbaum's catching up. Rosenbaum catches up with him. Now, it's unclear from the video whether he had his hand on or just near the muzzle. Uh, but the stippling uh, residue suggests that it was at least close there. Kyle is claiming that he actually touched the muzzle of the gun. You can't tell from the video. Um, at that point, Rosenbaum is clearly the aggressor. He's clearly going after the weapon. Kyle has done his best to evade the situation. He's tried to get away. He got stuck. He got cornered. He should shoot. He should do exactly what he did. He should shoot. Right? Um, and, and like I said, it's not just okay to fire in that circumstance. It's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. So um, I would appreciate it if people stopped making arguments about how Kyle should have done this or that less lethal thing. He should have ended fist fight. He should have had some pepper spray. You know, anything else that he did, he would have likely lost his weapon to Rosenbaum. And who knows what would have happened at that point? He might be dead. He might be dead. Uh, and Rosenbaum might have might have obtained his weapon. A man who, by the way, was legally uh, prohibited from owning uh, or possessing firearms. Kyle didn't know that at the time, but you know, Rosenbaum, not a great guy. The fact that you are trying to preserve your life um, without regard for the life of the aggressor is not, that's not an indictment on your moral character. It doesn't make you a bad person. All right. I'm going to go on to the topic now. Um, yeah, Dario says, in hindsight and relax, anyone can think more clearly. Yeah, look, I mean, when you... <laughs> if Kyle could have stopped time, I, mean, I guarantee, if Kyle could have stopped time instantaneously and collected drone and all surveillance video footage and done an analysis on his next best move, Maybe it wouldn't have been to shoot. Maybe he would have realized I could duck right behind this car quickly and then do that. I don't know. But expecting someone to do that in the moment, it's, it's, it's dishonest. 
um, it's dishonest. It's 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 shameful and dishonest. <sighs> All right, I can say more, but I won't. I gotta stop watching this video. I gotta stop watching the video. I gotta stop watching the video. Okay. Uh, like I said, I was gonna do this this video on faith today, but I got a comment from someone, and I just want to. It's, it's from the Goondocks War Council. Is the guy's the guy's name or gal or Zer? Who knows? Um. Oh, hold on. I'm gonna read G-Man's super chat here because it's about Kyle, and we haven't moved on yet. So G-Man says Kyle displayed more discipline as a 17 year old 17 year old than most adults. He waited until the very last possible moment. He's lucky to be alive today. I agree. I think he did. Watching the videos of Kyle, and I think I said this at the time, my first reaction was stellar job. Stellar job. Uh, comporting yourself properly, keeping your muzzle pointed in safe directions as often as you could. He got, he was on the ground and still did a pretty good job. He had the wherewithal. He missed one guy. Uh, fine. But like, he, it was, he didn't shoot uh, Gage until Gage uh, pulled out a weapon um, and approached him. So it was like, he, really, he kept his head in many ways. And in many ways, of course, he was overwhelmed by stuff, right? I mean, you know, the prosecutor tried to make him look like a bad guy because he lied to the crowd that was like, did you just shoot someone? And he's like, it sounds like you said you didn't shoot someone. Like, look, if you're at a riot and you shoot one of the rioters in self-defense and the rest of the mob asks you if you shot someone, lie to them. Lie to them. Nope. Don't know who did that. Bye. I mean, what the hell? It's just, what do they expect? Yes, I did. Would you like to slit my throat now? Anyway, I'm going to go back. Let's, let's move on. Uh, unless anyone else has any other Rittenhouse stuff that you want to talk about. Uh, let me look through chat. Beverly says this is such a two movies playing thing. I just saw on Twitter early about people saying he doesn't know guns at all and shouldn't have held one. <laughs> yeah, that's you're right, Beverly. That's coming from people who have never held one. He did a fantastic job, really. I mean, to to be in the moment like that and to and and to to behave that well, he he did a good job. Seriously, it's not easy. It's not easy to do that. And by the way, we do forget this. And someone tweeted this earlier. I forget who it was. I'd, I'd give her credit. I think it was a female. Um, but she was saying, we forget sometimes that he was 17. And uh, and we watch that video and we see what I see with that video. It, it looks like someone pretty well trained who's just doing their, doing their thing. But you forget that, you know, this is a pretty traumatic event for this kid. Um, and, you know, he did break down on the stand uh, today. It, it was kind of heartbreaking. Um, yeah, it's, it's traumatic, right? Um, and there are two movies playing, but that's because I, I don't think any honest person can watch the trial and look at the media and think that it's an accurate representation of what's happening on the trial. Um, I really don't, regardless of your political, even if you think he's guilty, you can't look at the trial and look at the media and not see the blatant lies and distortion. Okay. 
Back to the Goondocks War Council, who is a user who commented on, actually, it was a coffee break that he commented on, he or she, or is there a commented on. But I really like this comment because it's a great, this is the kind of criticism that I like to get. It's insightful, it's honest, it's like the work has been put in, it's not an emotional blarp back at me that's like, I don't like what you said. You are. It's, it's, you know, or just a lot of people's comments when they disagree with me are just asserting the opposite, right? I disagree with the, all right, I don't care. All right, make an argument. This, this person made an argument, it was a good argument, and I'm gonna, it's gonna result in a mea culpa. I'm gonna correct some stuff because of this. It's an excellent criticism. So let me read it. It says, Harder, you and Malice like to cite that, quote, myth of objective law paper. And the paper this person's referring to is this John Hosnes paper, which is at the end of the Anarchist Handbook. This is Malice's Anarchist Handbook. Uh, and the paper is indeed called The Myth of the Rule of Law. It's chapter 21 in this book. And I have been citing it a lot recently. He says, but I don't think it proves what you want it to. Um, hard to lay out the case in a single comment, but in short, the paper and you seem to be strawmanning objectivity, conflating it with intrinsicism or inerrancy. The objections raised with respect to the law are essentially the same as those that subjectivists raise against objectivity and concepts. I know you believe in objectivity and concepts, so I invite you to set your political priors aside for a moment and reconsider the paper in that light. It, the paper, seems to boil down to two objections. One, reasonable people can disagree about cases and it's impossible to draw a firm objective line. And two, it's impossible for judges to set aside their experiences and biases from their decisions. Both these types of objections have been refuted in relation to conception, as you well know. Objectivity does not mean that hard cases go away and that the right decisions are, is always clear. Rather, it means that whatever the decision is, it should be based on the facts of reality and sound reasoning. Also, objectivity does not mean that the subject is removed from the equation. Rather, it recognizes that decisions are made by people, but that they should be based on facts and reasons, not entirely on whim, like subjectivists hold. More to say on this, but comment is already too long. It's a good comment, though. Long, but a good comment. So let me start by saying he's right. Um, and I'm going to mea culpa on this. I don't actually agree with uh, Hasnas's, if that's how you say it, Hasnas's argument that objectivity is not possible, which is his argument in the paper. And I don't actually agree that objective law is not possible. Um, but I probably get carried away promoting this thing and I kind of, it seems like I do and it acts like I do, right? Um, I also don't think this paper proves anything about anarchy. It's not the reason that I'm anti-government. Um, I just think the paper is interesting, but I've probably gotten carried away promoting it and I've probably been very sloppy in misrepresenting what I agree with and what I don't in the article. And um, I'd like to thank the Good Docs War Council uh, or Goon Docs Word Council, War Council, I guess. Um, and I'd like to actually go over what objectivity is. It's a, it's a great topic and I think it's worth covering. Minda Vanderlees says, do you think the law will win or the politics with Rittenhouse? Oh. <sighs> Depends on the jury, right? I don't know. Um, I certainly hope, I certainly hope the law wins, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess objectivity does relate to this case a little bit. So let's talk about what objectivity is objectivity does not require 
inerrancy. It doesn't require that you don't make mistakes or that you don't get things wrong or that humans are perfect in their analysis. Uh, in fact, uh, the opposite is true. Our faculty, I've said this before, but our faculty for perceiving truth about the world is not automatic and inerrant. And if it were automatic, if it were automatic and inerrant, there would be no need for the concept of objective or subjective. We wouldn't need those concepts because we would just automatically have this perfectly integrated conceptual hierarchy that was correlated to reality, right? Even if we didn't have all knowledge, whatever knowledge we did have would be perfectly integrated and correct and correlated to reality. The, the reason we need this is we need to we talk about and distinguish the difference between objectivity and subjectivity is precisely because we don't have that kind of a cognitive apparatus. Um, so we don't have something that just automatically gives us no internal contradictions and is perfectly consistent with reality. That's not how our brains work. It, I guess it would be nice. It would be nice. But, but like I said, our conceptual faculty is not inerrant. It's not automatic. What objectivity is, what it means, and I'll contrast it with subjectivity in a minute, but what objectivity means is simply there's kind of two recognitions. There's a metaphysical recognition that um, reality exists independent of your consciousness. It's a metaphysical recognition required for objectivity. Um, and there's also an epistemological recognition that we need a process for policing our concept hierarchy uh, and that process is reason using logic, both induction and deduction, right? It's the, it's the art of non-contradictory identification. We've talked about this. That's all objectivity is, right? It's, it's, it's a recognition of those two truths. And when we say someone's being objective to the extent that their cognitive process uh, demonstrates that these metaphysical and epistemological recognitions. Right? And we can contrast that with subjectivity. Subjectivity, uh, well, you can have kind of a metaphysical subjectivity. Uh, and an example of that is you'll hear people sometimes say, well, what's true for you isn't true for me. That's a form of metaphysical subjectivity, right? Uh, that kind of a statement about the metaphysical world allows any conclusion to be possible, right? Um, it kind of appears to destroy a correlation with reality because it implies that we have separate realities. Um, but it's really dishonest. It doesn't, it doesn't actually accomplish that. What it does, it, it assumes that we have a shared reality by virtue of the fact that someone's communicating to you and trying to convince you of something, right? They're communicating using a shared language. They're making an argument in order to achieve a goal in our shared reality, right? Um, but at the same time, acting as if, well, there's two different realities. There's one metaphysics for me and one metaphysics for you. Um, and sometimes, so that's, a, that's an example of, of metaphysical subjectivity. And sometimes what people will push back on this and they'll say, well, what about the statement, chocolate is delicious, right? It's true for you, but not true for me or something like that. Uh, and I wanna call this out. This is an intellectual illusion. It's deceptive. The statement chocolate is delicious is an intellectual illusion. It's a deceptive statement. Because it's incomplete, 
right? The word delicious is a value judgment. Value judgments inherently imply and require a valuer, right? It's not like saying chocolate is, you know, made of cocoa beans, right? <laughs> like that's an objective fact. Chocolate is delicious is a value judgment. It requires a valuer. Delicious does not exist as an attribute of anything in reality without a corresponding valuer for whom it is delicious, right? Delicious implies, to whom is it delicious? To whom? Um, and in normal speech, we often drop to whom for convenience because it's obvious. So we don't say chocolate is delicious to me, right? We just say, eh, chocolate's delicious. And the to whom is implied, we all know, it's, it's the speaker, right? But it's dishonest to take that shorthand, chocolate is delicious, um, and pretend that it means something completely different than what it does, right? It's dishonest to pretend that chocolate is delicious is some sort of complete statement about metaphysical reality and then use it to justify that, well, there's two different sets of truths, one for you and one for me. Uh, if you like chocolate and I don't, the proper honest way to frame that is not to say chocolate is delicious and what's true for you isn't what's true for me. The proper way to frame that is to say chocolate is delicious to me or simply I like chocolate. So, um, so don't let people get away with, with saying things like what's true for you isn't true for me. That's a sign of subjectivity. It's metaphysical subjectivity. They're trying to pretend that there is more than one reality. Now, let's back to the discussion. Uh, I'll stop talking about chocolate. So objectivity recognizes that uh, reality exists independent of your consciousness. And we can contrast that with metaphysical, metaphysical subjectivity in which reality depends on your consciousness. And you end up with this kind of silly, but cognitively devastating statements, like what's true for you isn't what's true for me. But you can also have epistemological subjectivity. Um, instead of the recognition that we need to employ reason to police our concept hierarchy, uh, we can substitute something else. In place of reason, we can substitute other people's opinions, CNN polls, supernatural beliefs, uh, unexamined aphorisms or bromides, fortune cookies, poetic words in a sacred text that speak to you. You can substitute any of those things for reason. Um, or you can just evade the responsibility of policing your concept hierarchy altogether, right? Uh, you know, contradiction surfaces, you laugh it off, brush it aside, you know, ignore it, whatever. All these cases of epistemological subjectivity boil down to uh, substituting feelings for reason. I won't get into exactly how that is, but if you look at it, you'll see that they all, they all boil down to what you feel trumps what you think. Um, so in summary here, we can call someone's judgment on a matter objective to the extent that they are, their cognitive process here demonstrates that metaphysical recognition that reality is independent of their consciousness and the epistemological recognition that a process of reasoning and only reason is required for analysis, right? And that implies uh, with it policing the concept hierarchy there. And we can call someone's judgment on a matter subjective to the extent that they deny either of these metaphysical or epistemological recognitions. Um, and the activist reality, you know, if the activists as if reality is a product of consciousness or there's multiple realities or if the emotions reveal some sort of extrinsic truth those are all those are all signs of subjective 
reasoning or um, reasoning in quotes, subjective thinking. Um, and so as a reminder, objectivity does not mean that our cognitive faculties are infallible. It actually means the opposite. It means because they're fallible, we need to have some process for reaching conclusions, right? We must reach conclusions through some process other than human reasoning, since reasoning can be flawed. Like that's, um, sorry, I, I don't know why I said other than, subjectivity is when we say, well, we have to reach conclusions through some process other than reasoning. So when someone says objectivity requires infallibility, they're basically saying, well, you need to use your cognitive process to um, make claims about the world, but the fact that you have a process means those claims aren't true. Therefore, you need to find some other way of making claims about the world uh, that doesn't involve reason, which is absolutely ridiculous. Although uh, many philosophers have done that uh, quite a lot, intrinsic truths and all this kind of stuff. So let's look at this. Let's review this. Uh, let's review this article, this paper. G-Man says, is this thinky talk? You'll have to ask uh, John Legazamo. I don't know. I think it's above his head. Uh, all right. This, this article is written in 1995. It's like I said, it's called the myth of the rule of law. And I'm going to talk about what he said. I'm, I'm not going to cover the whole thing. That would take forever. I'm going to talk about some essential things he says, what he says in here, what he's wrong about and what he's right about even if he's not really saying it explicitly or what I like about it. So um, we'll take an example on page 316. He says the human, so actually let's back up. One of his arguments is about the current state of law. And here he's pretty good. What he says here on page uh, 316 in Malice's book, I don't know where it is on his, his paper, but he says the human law, the, the, the law human beings create to regulate their conduct is made up of incompatible, contradictory rules and principles. And as anyone who has studied a little logic can demonstrate, any conclusion can be validly derived from a set of contradictory principles. This means that a logically sound argument can be found for any legal conclusion. So what's he right about here? Well, he's, he's right that this is the current state of law. It is indeed made up of incompatible, contradictory rules and principles. That's true. It is. Now, let's look at what he's wrong about. In this first sentence, uh, where he says that you know our laws are made up of incompatible, contradictory rules and principles, in the first sentence, uh, he's not really wrong about that at all, provided that it's a descriptive statement. Right? If he's just describing what's going on, if it were proscriptive, if he were saying this is the way it must be, then there's a problem. And he does say that later, so we'll get to it. But he doesn't say that here. Um, in the second sentence here, where he says, this means that a logically sound argument can be found for any legal, legal conclusion. Um, he's wrong here because arguments rely on their premises. And two contradictory premises cannot both be true, because reality doesn't have contradictions. Um, and and reason as such is what do we just call it a process of non contradictory identification. So 
I wouldn't call an argument logically sound if it started with a false premise, right? So I, you can't actually have logically sound arguments that are opposing because one, at least one must start with a false premise. Um, nevertheless, I do understand what he means here, right? So we can be a little bit generous with this one. We can say, well, if you accept the contradictory premises as equally valid, then you can reach any conclusion through a process of logical deduction. Um, that's like saying, if you accept poison and ice cream as you know equally food, you can eat anything. Okay, that's true. Um, now he makes though, he, the, the, the bigger point here he makes here, um, is an argument about law as such. I'm gonna read you three, three quotes, three short quotes here. One is on page 319. He says, for even if the law were consistent, the individual rules and principles are expressed in such vague and general language that the decision maker is able to interpret them as broadly or as narrowly as necessary to achieve any desired result. On page 323, I think these are all ones that I've quoted before, which is why I'm using these passengers, at least most of them. On, three, on 323, he says, it is impossible to reach an objective decision based solely on the law. This is because the law is always open to interpretation and there's no such thing as a normatively neutral interpretation. The way one interprets the rules of law is always determined by one's underlying moral and political beliefs. And finally, on the next page, 324, just really quick snippet he's here, he says, uh, there is simply no such thing as uninterp uninterpretable language, right? by which he means language that someone doesn't have to interpret. Obviously, uh, everything in your brain has to go through your cognitive process. So let's look, about, let's look at what he is right about here. He's right that people do interpret the law through the lens of their, quote, underlying moral and political beliefs. He's correct about that. Uh, more correctly and more completely, I would say people must, in fact, interpret all language uh, and perform all analysis and all their judgment through the lens of their philosophic premises which presumably includes their moral and political beliefs. So in other words, um, people have a means of cognition. They must interpret the external world through that means of cognition, duh. That means of cognition can be logical or not. They can have a concept hierarchy that correlates to reality or doesn't. They can hold contradicting premises, vague floating abstractions in place of principles, they can grant primacy to emotion over reason or not. So he's right. He's right in that sense. He's right here. Here's where he's wrong. His argument here is based on the assumption that there are no objective principles, right? He says law is always open to interpretation as determined by one's underlying moral and political beliefs. Now that's only a problem if basic moral and political beliefs differ. Obviously, if we have all the same beliefs, then it's not a problem, right? But they only differ to the extent that they're non-objective. 
themselves, those beliefs themselves are non-objective. Um, if moral and political beliefs uh, are a function of whim or emotion or competing ancient texts or peer pressure or driving, uh, you know, divining revelation, uh, then they're bound to differ, right? But if the result, uh, if those beliefs are a result of a rational philosophy, if they're part of a rational integrated conceptual hierarchy, if they're products of a self-correcting cognitive process of non-contradictory identification, in other words, if those are object, if they're objective themselves, then their application can be objective. And remember, objective doesn't mean inherently uh, correct or inerrant. It just means, uh, you know, and it won't mean it doesn't mean that there's never going to be any disagreements or mistakes. It just means accepting the metaphysical world is independent of consciousness and this, this epistemological necessity of non-contradictory identification, reason. So here's the error here. The error here is that he's arguing as if he's a moral subjectivist. I don't know him. I don't know if he is or not. But this argument is from the perspective of a moral subjectivist, right? He views moral and political beliefs from a subjective perspective here. So his argument really amounts to the trivial statement that philosophy is subjective, therefore so is the law. Well, sure. If you think philosophy is objective, then, or sorry, if you think philosophy is subjective, then sure, everything is. Concepts are, law is, all of it is, sure. Here's the nuance of what I like about this, now that I've said all this. even though there's this error, despite this error. What I like about this essay is that it, in this argument in particular, is that it clearly articulates the primacy of philosophy over law. A lot of people, Twitter, YouTube, around the conservative verse especially, even a lot of libertarians, they spend their time arguing about what the law should look like. That's their solution to saving Western civilization. I made this argument to Keith the Hack Guy when he was uh, very excited about, um, what was it? It wasn't the 10th Amendment Center. It was the, I don't remember the name of it. It was the Constitution, uh, some group that was trying to get a Convention of States. Maybe it was called Convention of States Project. This idea that like, oh, if we rewrite this, if we fix that, we switch the law, we fix the language, the law, blah, 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 that'll fix Western civilization. That'll save it. Um, it will not. I don't believe that it will save it. It won't. It's not that I don't believe. It will not save it. I can demonstrate it. It won't save it. Precisely for the reasons that this guy lays out, that Hasnas lays out in this essay. Objective law requires a population capable of objectivity, right? If you have a mind that is corrupted with foggy concepts that are disconnected from reality and a mind that clings to emotion rather than reason, um, it can't be objective. It doesn't have the apparatus to be objective. You've got a whole society full of those. <laughs> You're not gonna have objective law. You can't, you can't. <laughs> Keith says Convention of States Project, I got over it. I know. It warms my heart that you got over it. Uh, let me make an analogy here. Uh, if I have a fully functioning Ferrari, 
Uh, I can drive anywhere the roads will take me, nice and quickly too, in style. But, and that, that, that's, that analogy is a cognitive process, like a rational, objective, cognitive process. But if instead I have all the parts from a fully functioning Ferrari, um, but instead of having them assembled into a Ferrari, I, uh, I give them to a modern artist. <laughs> and he scatters them on the beach and leaves them for 10 years. And then he comes back and he carefully welds them all together to make a giant penis statue to represent the, uh, I don't know, the oppression of the patriarchy in motorsports. Well, he's got all the parts, um, but you're not going to drive very far. <laughs> on that thing, right? All the parts are there, but they're rusty, decayed, and they're not assembled properly. This is why a lot of times, you've, you've heard me say this about the philosophic enemies of the West. And I've said this to people who are, are sucked into politics and very worried about the legal system. I've said, they'll let you have your constitution. They just want the dictionary. They just want the dictionary. Now, really what they want is they want to be able to corrupt your cognitive process. Um, and the dictionary is just a part of that. It's a good tool. It helps them destroy concepts and make them foggy and muddy and less useful. So let's go back to the Ferrari analogies. Now, got this <laughs> Ferrari penis sculpture. Uh, now, Hasnas comes along. I'm a law professor. He sees a whole bunch of modern artists. He looks out at the world and he sees a whole bunch of modern artists on the beach. And they each have in front of them a complete set of car parts. But none of these artists uh, care about the condition of the parts. Um, and none of them care to follow any kind of process in assembling the car. They're just randomly picking stuff off the beach and welding it together to make their own sculptures. So Hasnas looks at this art, I'll put in quotes, and he concludes building cars is impossible. That's his conclusion, right? Um, and he's right, sort of. It is impossible to build cars given the current state of our car parts and our current assembly process, I'll put in quotes, right? If that's our process, if that's what we got, it is actually impossible to build a car, all right? But building a car is not impossible as such, right? If we got rid of the modern artists, and gave the parts to mechanics who would clean up or replace the rusty bits and assemble them correctly, then we could build a car, right? But we're in a culture now where no one wants to be told that they need to be mechanics, right? Few people even strive for objectivity uh, in political issues, let alone philosophical ones. There's almost no effort uh, because it's a pain and it might make you feel uncomfortable a bunch of times. It's much better to just get what you feel, right? Now on page 330, this is the last quote. On page 330, I've, this is one I definitely quoted the other day, I know it. Hasna says, it is not rule of law that gives us a stable legal system. It is the, stabil it is the stability of the culturally shared values of the judiciary that give rise to and supports the myth of the rule of law. Now, I would say if those culturally shared values are arbitrary, then the rule of law is indeed a myth. And today they are arbitrary. Um, and they're not shared actually. 
which is another point he makes. But if those values are byproducts of a rational philosophy, right, one that objectively corresponds with reality in the sense that I talked about earlier, then the process for applying the rule of law does in fact become objective. It's not infallible, but it is objective. Um, but of course we don't have, we don't even have culturally shared values right now, let alone rational ones. And this is why I think, you know, a lot of people look at the state of society and they, 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 they talk in terms of, well, we have to have our own culture. We have to, people are worried. And, you know, they get, a lot of people get called xenophobic for talking about culture. They're not, they're not talking about, we need to have our own food or dress or music. Those things are all nice, but you know, everyone likes to eat different foods, right? So those things aren't the threat to the culture. The threat is um, the moral and philosophical values that are differing. And so people feel much better about uh, the myth of the rule of law. It seems much more concrete if at least they have shared values. Um, and I would argue it's possible to be objective if the culture has shared objective values. Obviously not everyone in the culture, but if you have a culture of, of people who are not trying to make up more realities than there are, there's one, and it's not related to your consciousness, it exists independently of it. And if they're using reason, non-contradictory identification, as their standard, you will get objective judgment out of that. You won't get inerrancy, but you will get objective judgment. So, guess what the definition is going to be tonight? Objectivity. That's the definition. By the way, I'm looking to see if um, I'm looking to see if uh, the Goondocks War Council is in chat, but I don't think he is, unfortunately. I'll have to tell him to watch this later. All right, so before we do our definition of the day, <clears throat> I know I'm running a little long, probably because of my Rittenhouse rant, sorry. Um, before we do the definition of the day, by the way, if you guys need clarification on anything, questions, pushback, you know, put them in, put them in chat. Um, I want to first talk about a, I want to make a note on definitions because when I originally introduced concepts, <laughs> I debate about, well, so there's two things. One is I'm learning how to, uh, to teach and talk about this stuff, right? It's, this is a process where I'm like, oh, what's the best way to present this? What's the best way to talk about this? And I sometimes get it wrong. And, uh, and the flip side is sometimes I'm just, I don't realize how precise I should be and I'm sloppy with stuff. When I originally talked about the concept hierarchy and concepts, I talked about, uh, definitions to place concepts in fixed positions in your conceptual hierarchy. Right, And we said that they were in the form of, this belongs to the broader category of this thing, here's the genus and the species, it's differentiated from other members of the category by these things. And this is how we can like, fix that in our conceptual hierarchy. I'm assuming you've watched all the previous episodes and if you haven't, sorry, go back and watch more. Um, but keep in mind here that concepts themselves are, are mental integrations with a vast amount of complexity behind them. They're integrations of entities with, with lots of complexity behind them. The process of concept formation is more uh, inductive. It's not deductive. In other words, the concept of a thing is formed by finding two or more existence, two or more units 
that share differentiating characteristics and you put them together. You actually omit specific measure, specific measurements, but I'm not gonna get into measurement omission um, and stuff today. But the concepts themselves represent concretes. Like they subsume a bunch of concretes. Concretes that you've seen in the past, will see in the future, and even concretes that you might never actually see. So let's give an example. Um, you might've seen a lot of airplanes in your day. You might've seen pictures of the Wright Brothers airplane and the Concorde and 747s and some fighter jets and whatever else. And you formed the concept of airplane at some point. And I don't know if this is the official definition, but roughly we can say an airplane, it's an apparatus. I think this is basically essential. This is a pretty good essential definition. It's an apparatus that uses the aerodynamic lift of fixed wings for flight. It's pretty good. Maybe you can do a little bit better, but it doesn't matter. It's somewhere around there. Now, you might have never seen, and you never will see, probably, uh, a Pink Panther-themed airplane, right? Where uh, the cockpit is Pink Panther's head, and there's like a pink tail in the back, and as it flies, it goes You could imagine it, though, right? Um, you know from the concept of airplane that if I describe this thing, you would know it's an airplane. It's a weird airplane. But you'd be like, yeah, that's an airplane. You've never seen it, probably never will see it, but you could fit it into that concept. Um, so that concept includes all these things that you, you haven't seen. But the definition is not the concept. The definition is only the way to place the concept in our hierarchy, in our mental hierarchy. Um, you know, so we do that by identifying the essential characteristics of a plane, or whatever I said, it was uh, fixed wings using aerodynamic lift, right, for flight. Okay, so we identify those essential characteristics, and we use those characteristics to place it in the concept hierarchy. So we understand where it belongs in the concept hierarchy, but those characteristics are not the only characteristics of a plane. The concept plane the definition of a plane maybe doesn't include other characteristics of a plane, but the concept plane does, right? The concept and the definition are not interchangeable. Um, so the concept of an airplane still includes things uh, like, I could say, uh, if all airplanes, I could say airplanes contain some kind of landing gear, pontoons or wheels or whatever, skis, right? Um, or I could say all, you know, airplanes contain steering mechanisms. You don't get to say, well, no, those things aren't in the definition. Cause look here, here's the definition. It doesn't say they have those things. No, because they're not the essential characteristics, but airplanes do have those are characteristics of airplanes, right? The concept of airplane includes all of those characteristics of the airplane. The definition essentializes that just the essential ones are used in the definition. Um, so I want you to remember this, the definitions don't create entities, right? The entities come first, the concept comes first with all its characteristics that subsumes all those entities, that concept. And the definition helps you place it in your mental conceptual hierarchy so you can understand and access it easily. The fact that a thing has essential characteristics doesn't mean it only has essential characteristics, right? And in a future show, I'll probably talk uh, about this a little bit more because I'll probably talk about the analytic synthetic dichotomy. But for now, I just want to clarify the difference between concepts and definitions that we use to identify the concepts. So you guys aren't running around thinking that the definitions we're coming up with are the concepts. That's not true.
All right, I know that was a little bit of a tangent. Let's do our let's do our definition of the day. And then we're done. Where is it? I'm going to pull up my OED here. All right. There it is. The good old Oxford English Dictionary. Okay. Now, as a reminder here, we are using the dictionary definition as a reference for a starting point. It is not, this might shock you, dictionaries are not the final arbiter of what a definition is. They are not. You can satisfy yourself with dictionary definitions if you're not interested in having philosophic discussions or making philosophic arguments. You can use, if, if you know, dictionaries can have sloppy or vague or corrupt definitions and people kind of use them that way in vague, sloppy ways. And you can communicate using those definitions to the extent that normies can communicate in reality, you're welcome to do that. Um, you get a lot of vagary, you get a lot of lack of, just lack of clarity and, and, and discord when you do that. But we, on this show, we are interested specifically in having philosophic discussions. To do that, we need to police our concepts and the definitions themselves. We need to police them. We can't just be like, well, whatever's in the dictionary is correct. So which means that we can use the dictionary definitions as a starting point that can help us. But in some cases, we might need to ultimately pinpoint a more proper, philosophically accurate definition, unless you trust everyone who works at dictionaries. And hopefully, as you've seen them redefine things like racism, sexism, and even inflation, by the way, has been redefined over the years, you'll realize that uh, dictionaries aren't philosophic definitions. They are colloquial. They're what people think of. And when people have muddied brains and aren't clear on concepts, then the dictionary definitions aren't clear either. Uh, we'll see that actually when we explore faith, hopefully next week. So objectivity, uh, here it is. Objectivity, uh, where is it in my, hold on, I need to look at it on my other screen here. Okay. It's actually a pretty easy one. Oh, did it disappear just now? Sorry, guys. Let me try that again. I'm having a boomer moment, apparently. Uh, share the screen. Boom. Share. Okay. Objectivity. Uh, it actually isn't, this isn't actually bad. Um, there's only one, which is weird. <laughs> Usually there's a whole bunch, but in OED here, there's only one entry. Originally philosophy. <laughs> yeah, originally. Okay. The quality or character of being objective. So that's a useless. Let's move on. Especially the ability to consider or represent facts, information, etc., without being influenced by personal feelings or opinions, impartiality, and detachment. It's not bad. It's not philosophically rigorous, but it's not bad. It's not bad. It doesn't say inerrant. It does mention feelings and saying that they shouldn't be part of it. All right. So let's do our. Let's do our. If I was going to define this here, again, maybe um maybe maybe we can refine it. Maybe I'm not exactly correct, but if I'm gonna if I'm gonna define this here, I would say it. Remember, we'll follow our format. It belongs to the broader category of objectivity. Belongs to the broader category of I would say maybe cognitive analysis or the decision making process. It's a it's a it's a cognitive 
analysis type of thing, right? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a characteristic of how you're thinking about something, right? So that's the broader category it belongs to. There's other ways, there's different ways to do your cognitive analysis, different ways to think about things. It's in that category, but it's differentiated from other members of the category, very simply by the two things we talked about before, by its adherence to the metaphysical primacy of existence over consciousness and its adherence to the epistemological necessity of reason as opposed to emotions or other things, right? That's what objectivity is. That's what it is. Um, and remember, objectivity is only important precisely because our cognition is fallible. I know I keep saying that, but I say it because it gets missed a lot. Um, you need a process, right, that doesn't ask you to decide what's right and wrong, but merely asks you to observe what's right and wrong or true and false, right? That's, that's the goal here. It's not, you don't get to decide what's true or false if you're being objective. If you're being objective, you must observe it, think, integrate, root out contradictions, observe, and then reflect back what is true. It's not a decision process. It's more of an observation and reflection process. Now, pointing out that people can corrupt their cognitive process is not proof that objectivity is not possible. It's proof that we need to focus on it and we need to use it. Right? It's proof that it does differentiate from other members of that category. There are, there are ways to use your cognitive process differently, and those are subjective. But I still like uh, that Hasnas essay, despite uh, that error, um, for the reason I gave. And that is that philosophy comes before the law. We need to be focusing on how to think. Um, we need to be focusing on philosophy and uh, and all of its branches before we get to legal texts, right? We need a we need a society of people who can think objectively before we ask them to objectively apply laws. Um, and we don't have that right now. So that's why the law is not my priority because they own the dictionary, right? They have the dictionary. They've got the philosophy departments. They've got the dictionary. They've got mainstream media, they being, uh, I'll say the irrational and uh, until until we wrestle that from them, it doesn't really matter what we write down on pieces of paper and pretend is, is, is going to be implemented objectively. All right. So I think that's it for today. Uh, I went 15 minutes over. Not bad. Um, let's see if we got any super chats I need to read. My super chat engine died, so let me pull it back up. Uh, nope, I think I got all of them. Let's see if there's any other stuff I need to talk about in here. Um, yeah, Teresa says vaccine's not the same as it was a year ago. Yeah, that is correct. Vaccine has been, anti, an anti-vaxxer has been changed. The definition of an anti-vaxxer has been changed, right? Um, Dario says it's another reason he prefers hard books. Digital content is fluent. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I've said this before, but you know, I've got and behind me down there on the shelf, I've got some old dictionaries. Um, it doesn't mean they're uninfluenced by philosophy. Of course they were. I mean, I, they're, I think they're 1927 or something like that, but uh, they're at least not influenced as much as the online version of Merriam-Webster or something, right? They're, they're, 
you know, a little better um, and maybe better starting points. So, so yeah. All right. I think that's it, everyone. Please, uh, you know, don't hesitate to give me feedback. Uh, I love suggestions, and actually, I love that criticism. I'm gonna re I'm gonna emphasize again. I love the criticism I got. It gave us this whole show. It gave me something to talk about, um, and it helped keep me in check uh, and not get too excited about essays. Hopefully, if Michael Malice, if you want to watch this show, you can comment on whether this essay is uh, making the errors that I think it's making, but. Uh, also, as a reminder, your subscribing to this show needs a booster shot. Um, efficacy wanes over time, so please go subscribe if you're not already. And please um, please consider supporting the show. Uh, every little bit helps. Thank you again to the people who do support. By the way, if you are a monetary subscriber, I don't say this often. We don't really talk about it. You get into the Discord. We have a Discord server. All you got to do is be a subscriber. You get into Discord. Um, we sometimes do subscriber only events. We haven't been doing a lot, but we are going to start doing more. Um, like I said, you get the cool mug. If you're at a high enough level, you get your name in the credits and you get to support stuff like this. If you like stuff like this. So thanks everyone. Uh, don't forget, you can go to unsafespace.com as always to find all the stuff that you need, including live streams, blah, blah, blah. I will see you guys on Friday. I don't think there's, I don't know. Beverly can, jump in if there's a great reset this week on Thursday. I don't think there is, but there is Coffee Break this Friday, and then there's a 451 episode this Friday. So if you haven't been checking that out, check it out. Alex Maselli hosts it, and it's all about censorship. It's a good show. So, all right. Sorry the end credits are still old. I just had a baby, but I'm going to try and update them soon. Take care, everyone. Have a good evening. Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy, so go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms, at least for now. And you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. See you there. Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the Cathedral. Pay no attention to it. For your protection, the following co-conspirators have been unpersoned and scheduled for ideological vaccination. To avoid cancellation, please update your ideological contact tracing app on your smart device immediately. Here's a fun fact. Only vaccinated black lives matter. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't think about it, I mean, that's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, 
and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.